Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. You know, it sounds like the plot out of a fantastic Hollywood movie. A black civil rights activist finds a way to outsmart and take over a white supremacist group with the intent of destroying it. But that story is very real. James Stern recently took control of a neo-Nazi group based here in Detroit and is working to dismantle it. And here's the real kicker to the story. This is not the first time he has done this. Joining me now to talk more about this approach to fighting racism and white supremacy is Reverend James Stern, the civil rights activist who took control of a neo-Nazi group here in Detroit and is actively trying to destroy it. Reverend Stern, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Steve. Can you hear me okay? I sure can. Thanks for being here. For having me, I'm honored. Yes. I'm honored, Steve. I'm honored. So let's talk about uh, your background. Where do you come from? And what were you (laughs) doing before you started taking over hate groups? Uh, It wasn't hanging around hate groups, that's for sure. (laughs) I I come from something extremely... I think I was prepared for this. I come from Watts, California. Watts is um, famously known for the Watts riot we had in 1964. Um, Los Angeles, California, Inglewood, California, people are familiar with Compton. Um, Watts is a small community that is predominantly black now, but at one time it was actually predominantly white. And in the 50s when blacks start moving into Watts in the Los Angeles area, KKK members was very heavily hot and high there um, already. Yeah. Um, they even call, had something called Spooks, which was a, a off-branch of the KKK, which they came into the neighborhoods looking just to find blacks to kill. Well, unfortunately for them, they found out that the, the, the black people who lived in Watts were a whole different breed of, the, of Southern blacks. While they are from the South, these are blacks who had pretty much had it with the mentality of the South and the slavery days. And so... To make a long story short on that, it resorted to blacks being treated so bad by white supremacist people that they started a riot called the Watts Riot. And during that riot, Steve, something very important to realize, blacks developed a policy that says for every black man who died but at the hands of a, of a white a racist, three white people died that night. Wow. wow. And, that's, that, and that's why the Watts Riot got so heavy and so bad that they even had a, the governor had to call the National Guards in and put army tanks blocking off the city of Watts from surrounding suburb areas where white people live because blacks were keeping good on their promise. You know, mm-hmm. you're killing us. We were, we're going to show you that it's not going to just go unanswered. Now, do I agree with that? Absolutely not. But it was a situation at the time when that was the answer to the problem. And the problem was resolved within three or four days of the riot where they sat down and negotiated peace. And... From that point on, in 1964, Watts has evolved. Inglewood used to be a city where you couldn't be even buried in the, in the cemetery there if you was a black man. Mm. Um, you couldn't let the sun go down on you, or you were, you were treated very bad, if not killed. So we have evolved to the point where in Los Angeles here, blacks and whites have a very good relationship. We, uh, we, have, a, we have a mutual respect for each other. Um, if we don't like each other, Steve, it's not because of our color. It's because somebody, excuse my expression, Somebody's an asshole. <laughs> and so, you know, you have a personal vendetta against that person because of their personality. But we don't fight each other on color. We get along very well. You have interracial marriages, even in many cases. You know, if you love somebody, you love, you marry them. 
we don't have no no boundaries on getting along out here. Mm. But unfortunately, you have in some states and some areas where people ha- have these ideals where blacks and whites should not mix. So my background is that um, I put the gang summit together in 1989 mm. between the Bloods and Crips um, because of the drive-by shootings. Um, I was a young minister called at 18 years old into the ministry um, at Tabernacle Faith Baptist Church. Um, then I put the summit together between the Korean cartel and the gang members when a Korean shot a black girl in the back of the head called Latasha Collins, and I negotiated a piece of that. I just found myself always in the middle of our community involved with some dangerous situations with people that I grew up with, gang members that I grew up with at their age. While they chose to be gang members, I chose to go into the... I was a, I was a little nerdy guy who went to church <laughs> and became a minister, and I buried most of the top gang leaders, um, family members, and, you know, I was there for them, hospital visitations, and so they grew a respect for me, and I became what you know as a community activist. I even um, saved Jim Brown's life, American, um, when he got into the gang business of trying to exploit gang members for financial profit, he found out those gang members were not going to go for it, and they one day was about to burn his house down because they got tired of being paraded on television and, and him making money and not sharing the money to them. Mm. And so... Uh, matter of fact, you, actually, what I'm saying to you is always you can find in my book. I have a book out called Mississippi Still Burning, um, which is on Barnes and Noble, um, Amazon, so worldwide. So um, that's my background. Yeah. Um, I did go to prison. I went to prison um, in 19 in 2004. I was arrested by the United States Secret Service, um, the FBI, the United States Postal Inspector, and the, the Sheriff Department um, on a Mississippi warrant. Uh, call it um, governor's warrant between two states. And it was on the warrant was originally for identity theft, fraud, uh, identity theft. And it was like something like 27 charges. I says, wow. And when they busted my, when I came in my house that morning and arrested me in 2004, within two weeks of investigation while I was in custody, Steve, every federal agent dropped their charges against me. Because this is no, he's not the one. And what was the what was the what was the charge? What what did they say you had been doing? It was originally identity theft. Okay, Um, they 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 were told the federal government was told that I was running the biggest identity theft ring in the country, which it wasn't true. So while I was in custody in the LA County Jail, waiting for uh, even extradition back to Mississippi, who filed the charges against me originally. um, You have to understand the United States Secret Service was involved because when you have identity theft, they investigate that. When you have it from another state, it crosses state lines, you have the United States Postal Inspector involved with that. And the fact that there was federal implications, you had FBI involved. So all these agencies investigated me very thoroughly, and they dropped the charges. The mm-hmm. only person who didn't drop the charge was Mississippi. They kept their warrant out from, you know, their, their um, interstate warrant for me to be extradited to Mississippi. I set Steve in a prison for two years, six months, without ever being indicted or charged. Wow. Wow! Just waiting for extradition. Just waiting. To California end. got California got so disturbed about this that they said if they don't come and get you in four days, we're going to just let you out on the streets. Goodbye. <laughs> so you're still. They, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, so, so so let's talk about how you get from that space to a place where you are trying to take over a hate group. Walk me through the thinking I, I there. I was sent to Mississippi. I was putting. I was get. I was sent to Mississippi and. After four months in Mississippi waiting for my initial appearance, you know, when you first see the judge, um, when I saw the judge the first time, I, I had, unfortunately, the last sitting judge of this um, Jim Crow area, which 
they um they, they they broke laws and wrote laws of their own choosing. This judge, when I walked in this courtroom, gave me said, "Mr. Stern, you've been sentenced to 25 years of state penitentiary for corporate wire fraud." I said, "Huh? What?" <laughs> you know, you, you can imagine my surprise. I said, "What do you mean, 25 years for corporate wire fraud sentence?" I said, "Hello." I said, "Constitution? Can I have a trial here?" You know, I said something, and he says, "No, take him away." And they took me away, and that was my first experience about the head down the answer to your question of how I got involved with this situation. I was sentenced to 25 years without a trial. I was about to spend the next few years of my life naturally fighting to get out of jail, you know, because I didn't have a trial. Right. So um, in my effort of appeals, going back and forth the court, in 2005, Edgar Ray Killen, who was the imperial wizard of the KKK, you know him from the famous movie of Mississippi Burning. Yes. Um, the Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner case in 1964. Um, he was transferred from a, a, a dungeon one-man holding cell to a unit called Unit 31 in, in Parchman Penitentiary, Parchman, Mississippi, um, the penitentiary there. Mm-hmm. And this place here held the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst pedophiles, murderers, and killers, okay, this unit, Unit 31. And while I was coming back from court one day, the warden was standing next to me, and he says, the, the, the sergeant said, Stern, have you ever heard of Edgar Ray Killen? No, I'm from California. No, and the answer was, absolutely. No, I never heard of him. She said, you sure you don't know who he is? I said, no. Then she said, you sure you don't? I said, ma'am, I don't know who the man is. Is he going to get me out of jail? And they thought they laughed, and they, had, they heard a joke when I said that. And they said, do you know, have you saw the movie Mississippi Burning? I said, actually, I, I've heard of the movie, but I've never seen it. I said, no, I've never seen the movie. The warden said, he'll do. She said, congratulations, you're Edgar Ray Killen's new cellmate. Which... They didn't mean nothing to me. One, one, one inmate versus another one, right. you know, okay, so what? But this one was special. This guy here, um, you already know his history, the Imperial Wizard of the KKK, living with a black man in, in, in prison. In prison. They put him in there. They put him in there. They put me in there with him so he could stay alive. You have to understand, every black man in a prison that was 98% black, who he had somebody killed in their families or personally killed, Edgar was responsible for everybody's death somewhere in their family in that prison. And so I was the only one who, coming from California, didn't have a dog in a fight. You know, I, I wasn't mixed up in the politics or the, or the pain of the past because of them directly. So they put me in a cell with them because they knew first I was fighting to go home and go, be free. So, you know, naturally I wasn't going to try anything to this guy. I'm trying to go home. So they put me in a cell with them to live, and I lived with them for a year and six months while fighting my conviction. And as you can see, I prevailed. They eventually kicked me out of prison and let me go and said, I'm sorry, and settled three lawsuits and says goodbye. Mm-hmm. But in the process of that, Edgar wrote me 174 letters um, of confession to everybody he killed, yeah. everybody he caused to be killed. He wrote me letters about situations that people have been trying to find out for 50 years. Steve, let me tell you something that's so funny. I'm thinking this man is crazy as hell, to be honest with you. You know, old man talking some of the stuff he was telling me about what he did to black people. And, you know, naturally, I wanted to snap his neck a couple of times because the stuff he was saying was so insulting. He called me the N-word. And I don't know if I can say it on the radio, so I'll just say the N-word. Yeah, let's, um, yeah, let's stick with that. <laughs> yeah, that's better. He called me the N-word so much, I thought my name was N. Stern. I thought my first name was the N-word and my last name was Stern. Wow. I, I mean, this man was, all he cared about was this, that's all I was to him. And he was telling me this crazy stuff, and the wardens would be at my door sergeants and lieutenants and captains. And I walked out one day and I, had, I remember the, the superintendent of work one day looked at me and says, why is he telling you all this stuff? 
And I looked at him and said, oh, that crazy stuff he's telling me? I said, that man's crazy. They said, no, sir. They said, we've been trying to find this stuff out for 50 years. Why is he telling you? Steve, I looked at those people like they were the craziest people I've ever seen. I said, this can't be true. <laughs> the stuff he's in there telling me is true? They said, yeah. They said, we've been trying to find this stuff out for 50 years. Why is he telling you a black man? I said, I don't know. You put me in a cell with this man. <laughs> I said, you know, you figure it out. But, you know, he was lonely. He was just lonely. Um, he was about to do 60 years of his life. That's wow. the rest of his life, you and know, so, at 85 years old. And so that in, that relationship inspires you to believe that uh, you can infiltrate these kinds no, of groups? No, no. I just happened to live, I happened to live with the man, and I got my behind, I got, I got beat to death almost by the, the, the two gang members, gangsters, disciples, and vice lords, because they, was, they misunderstood my relationship with Edgar Vina because I was in the same cell with them. And, and when I mean I got beat, man, they beat me to death. Because of that. And then till this one old inmate told them, leave that boy alone. He's finding out stuff we've been trying to find out for 50 years from this, this old Klansman. And so because of the beatings and the times that I saved Edgar from some problems in the prison, he grew over a year and six months. He grew a relationship with me where he started mm -hmm. trusting me. Mm -hmm. But he liked to talk. He liked to talk. You know, he was lonely. He was old. He had nobody else really to talk to. And when they told me that no one would ever believe me, George said, you better get this man to write this stuff down. No one would ever believe you. I remember one day in particular, I strategically planned on getting him to write something down. When he came to me to tell me a story, I said, Edgar, I got to run. I gave him a piece of paper and a pen. I said, write it down. I'll read it when lights go out tonight, you know, when we have a call lights out. And so he sat there in his wheelchair and he wrote. And when I got back, he says, tell me what you think. He wrote a letter, and he signed his name, Edgar Ray Killen, at the bottom. I took it over to George Jackson, who's dead now. He died in prison after 18 years. And he, I said, George, look, this is what he gave me. George, ah, oh, we got his ass. We got him. George was, George thought it was Christmas all of a sudden. You know, that this Edgar Ray Killen wrote a letter to me and confessed to something and signed his name to it. Edgar says, George says, give him to write some more. Give him to write some more. And it wasn't very difficult for him to write more because he actually sat there and he actually dreamed and I have to just say it this way. He was not having a kumbaya moment with me. Don't, don't, get, don't kid yourself. He was not repenting. He was not having revival with me. This man was thinking about the good old days when you can kill a good ninja. We'll say the word ninja. Yeah, right. For the word. So, so, and, so, and that's what, so, so, so tell right. me, though, how do you get from that space to the space where you're, where you're taking over these white supremacist organizations? Edgar Ray Killen wrote me... Two power, Edgar Ray wrote me two powers of attorney. Um, when, I get out of, when I got out of jail, was getting out of jail, he wanted me to handle some business affairs with him. He was mad at, the, he was mad at his own people for the, he called deserting him. He thought by him having 60 years, they deserted him. His first lawyer that lost the case that got him to 60 years, Edgar had him murdered that second night. Okay? And then his new lawyer that was taking over the case, um, Edgar promised him the book rights, and two acres of property, you know, if he takes the case. And the problem was, Edgar in prison notarized a release agreement signing over everything he had to me. His book rights, his movie rights, um, it, and it was notarized, you know, by the prison officials. And so when I walked out of prison, I walked out of controlling the actual signature of Edgar Ray Killen hmm. and everything he owned. And therefore, in all rights, as the courts ruled, I actually became the signature of the white knight of the KKK of Mississippi. I became their leader. <laughs> Go wow. figure that. <laughs> wow.
Yeah. So, so I and, disbanded it. And you disbanded it, right? I mean, yeah. I find, I I had a, I had a, I wrote to Loretta Lynch, the Attorney General at the time that was under the Obama administration. Um, I wanted to declare the KKK uh, a legal street gang and a, a domestic terrorist group. The problem was they were not incorporated. They were like the Bloods and Crips or any other street gang, you know, just organize and function under a name that's been established for years. But they were not they were not incorporated. So, therefore, the best thing I was able to do was to sign a, have the, they drew up a disbandment letter with me using Edgar A. Kellen's signature, hmm. disbanding legally the group. And the group did disband. Matter of fact, the new Imperial Wizard was so upset about it, he 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 he, he um quit the KKK and went and joined the National Socialist Movement in Detroit. There, your group. And and uh, so you you don't stop there. You you go on no. to do this again here in in Michigan, and I guess what I'm curious about is how do you how do you uh, how do you get to the space where you feel that as an African American you can gain the trust of these people who are leading these organizations and then get them to trust you enough to put you in charge. I mean that's a very strange reaction on their part. Your, your state um, of Detroit, the National Socialist Movement, was entirely different than Edgar Ray Kellen, you can understand. I was in a cell living with this man for a year and six months. So that, that does a strange thing to people relation bonding, you follow me? Um, that, that's different. In your situation, in the situation in Detroit, Michigan, um, there was a man named Jeff Scoop, mm -hmm. who was the commander of the National Socialist Movement already. When I got out of prison, by me doing gang summits and, you know, and always trying to bring peace together between rival gangs. After dealing with Edgar Ray Killen and living with him, race became very, and living in Mississippi, race became very important to me. There had to be some kind of healing process to bring us back together. And that's when I started a nonprofit called Racial Reconciliation Outreach Ministry. And the 41 acres of property Edgar Ray Killen gave me, I put the property in that name. Um, I got a call one day from Jeff Scoop. And he heard on the news that I lived with Edgar A. Killen, and I even had his prison ID card, you know, the, the little prison ID card when you mm -hmm. go to jail. Mm -hmm. And that's why, Jeff, that's why Jeff originally called me. He wanted to know that I really had the, the prison ID card, Edgar A. Killen. And I said, yes, I did. I said, yes, I do. He says, he said, I like to um, know, can I see it? I says, sure. You know, I didn't know who he was. Um, I said, you can see it like anybody else can. I plan on hopefully get a museum where people can be able to see these letters and stuff. He said, no. He said, I'd like to buy it from you. Well, by this time, I understand, I didn't already call eBay, and the, um, the CEO of eBay told me that ID card was worth $500,000 on the open, you know, if it was auctioned off, you know, because of the historical value of it. And so naturally, I wasn't trying to sell it or give it away to anybody. But while I was on the phone with my daughter, you know, those, these, my teenager, you know, teenagers know how to do computers. We old folks don't. She's on the phone. She's on the computer Googling this guy's name, Jeff Scoop. And she looked at me and she says, she turned the computer around and says, with well, her eyes open real big, said, Daddy, look who you're talking to. And hmm. I'm looking at this website that has all these swastikas on it. I mean, this was crazy as hell, excuse my language. I was like, whoa. I said, I said, Jeff, I said, are you Commander Jeff Scoop? He said, that's right. He said, he says, National Socialist Movement. I said, and I said, okay. I says, I says, I'm looking at your website with all these swastikas on it. I says, wow. I says, you know, I said, I don't get this. I says, yeah. why do you have all these swastikas up on your website? 
He said, that's the hallmark of who we, we believe in. Right. He said, we, you know, he's a, right. he said, he said, we come, he said, we come, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, he's, he's telling you that he's, he is a part of a white supremacist group. We need to take a break. And when we come back, okay. we're going to continue this conversation with you, Reverend James Stern, about this neo-Nazi group that uh, you came to be in charge of. We also want to hear from you, the listeners. What do you think about this story about a black man getting to be in charge of a white supremacist group in order to disband it? Give us a call on the phone, 313 577 1019 is the number. We're going to raise a little money and then we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. My guest is Reverend James Stern. He's a civil rights activist who took control of a neo-Nazi group in Detroit with the intention to destroy it. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Give us a call at 313-577-1019. Tell us what you think about this story, which reminds me, at least, of the movie Black Klansman, Spike Lee's film from last year, which he won an Oscar for. Uh, But also give us a call and tell us what you think about this idea that uh, white supremacist groups can be attacked this way. The idea of pushing back against racism uh, by maybe becoming part of the organization and then getting rid of it. Uh, Again, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Reverend Stern, I want to pick up where you were talking uh, when we had to break. Uh, Let's talk about how you convinced Jeff Scoop, who at the time was leading the National Socialist Movement based in Detroit. How did you convince him to sign control of the group over to you? First, I say about your fundraiser, I'll be making a donation to you guys, first of all. And I ask everybody, I ask everybody, I've had millions of people trying to make don- who are making donations to my GoFundMe page starting today, but mm-hmm. I'm going to ask Detroit, please, concentrate on WDET. Anything that you would consider doing to me, give to Detroit, because Detroit is actually a voice that's needed in your community. And when they contacted me for the story, Believe me, my publicist is trying to give it to other people time-wise, but I found it very compelling that you guys do have a, a real authentic voice there. So, Thank you. you know, please support. Your, your, we really your do here. appreciate that, mm-hmm. and especially coming from you. Okay. That means a lot. Uh, so, uh, so, so I, tell me how this happened. Back to happened. what you asked. Yeah. I, um, in 2014, I'm, I'm contacted by him about this one issue about the ID card, and I said to myself, I'm an opportunist. I said, hmm, I got this big racist basically on the phone. Who, um, and I'm, I'm reading his web page real fast, my daughter gave me, and he believed that he taught such crazy stuff like, you know, the Jews, Jewish Holocaust never really happened, slavery was not slavery, blah, blah, this. And so I said, Jeff, I said, let's have a summit meeting. Remember, I had summit meetings with gang members and stuff. I said, let's have a national conversation on race. And he says, what? I said, let's have a national conversation on race. He said, first of all, I understand that I'm not supposed to be, no one knows, can know I'm talking to you. He says, we don't talk to black people. He said, the last person, time we talked to a black organization officially was Malcolm X in 1964. I says, wow. And I looked up at everything he said, in fact, fine, he's telling the truth. He says, so he says, what do you have in mind? So I said, well, I'd like to fly you out here to Los Angeles. I said, and, um, let's have a summit meeting on race and let's talk about everything. Leave nothing off the table. 
I said, because you guys seem to be my yin and yang, you know, about what I stand for. And he loved the ideal. And so he was concerned about details. Um, he asked me to actually do your official channels by sending a letter to his website, you know, thing, which it was a joke now, I find out, because he controls everything. He's a dictator. He's a total dictator of everything. Um, and I, I went through the process, and within about a week, everything was worked out. He was going to come to L.A., and the key was security. And actually, um, I have access to some very – doing gang summits and stuff, some nice security forces out here. Um, and I told him, I said, well, you'll be safe. I said, well, I, I can assure you when you get off the plane, we'll get you to the summit. We'll get you to the hotel. We'll get you, to the, we'll get you back on the plane and get you back home. That I can I, – I, I guarantee you. I said, nothing's going to happen to you. And he was naturally concerned about that. He didn't want to come by himself, so he asked him he bring two of his top lieutenants. Um, his second-in-command, um, Colonel Brian Culpepper, um, at the time, was working with him. Um, and then there was another young kid who was – I call him a crash dummy. He was violent. <laughs> he, um, his, he, matter of fact, as soon as he got to Los Angeles, he needed to beat up with his friends so he could go and get a gun. And that's what he did. And he got an illegal gun and, and carried the gun with him the whole time that he was down here. Um, so that's the kind of mentality people were. So I met with them. We had a gang summit, I mean, um, a, a summit on race. We talked about the big issue was the swastikas with me. I said, why don't you take those swastikas off your logo? They're insulting. Six million Jews died with that. And he, you know, naturally fought against it. He said it never happened. He told me that he wanted to start an organization. This is your answer. He wanted to start an organization with the N N NSM that was going to be like the NAACP to white people. Mm. He wanted to be able to fight for white rights as the NAACP fight for black rights. Now, mind you, I have no problem with anybody wanting to fight for rights of their considered race. My problem with him was I told him I believe there's only one race. That's the human race. So I told him I don't believe in the separation of races. I think there's only one race. We're all one. We have different cultures and heritages, but we're all human beings. And he had a hard time swallowing that one. No, you know, we're not all one race. I said, yeah, okay. So he came out. We had this meeting. We, we, we debated issues. He met with Muslims and people that was very confrontational with him. And he found out, though, that in that meeting that no one was going to accept the NSM because of their history of violence and the, the, um, the, the propaganda they spread it, you know, over years. And from 2014 to 2016, he kept in communication. When he went back to when he went back to Detroit, he called me, and kept in contact with me. Okay, always, constantly, he kept in contact with me. Um, the one issue he called me back was because there was a reporter in the audience that knew that he used to be married to a black woman and had a child out there by a black woman, hmm. and that was a firestorm of them saying we can't talk about that subject. And he asked me to always keep that conversation off the table when we meet or when we talk. And for, from 2014 and 16, I, I spent a lot of time talking to him. Matter of fact, we agreed, because it was so serious what we talked about, we agreed to record each other's conversations, you know, for, histo for historical purposes. And we never knew, though, and I never knew to this day that those recording tapes were going to save out my skin some five years later, you know, about the conversations we had. Um, and so... He took off the in 2016. You know, he took off the swastikas off his website at my at my at my beckon, hmm. and I became his I became Steve his closest confidant. He talked to me about things that he would not even talk to his own white people about. More so because he knew that I didn't run in the same circles, and when he got to talk to me, he feels safe that no one's going to find out our and, conversations. And so, real so, so why do you think he trusted those things? Why did he trust you in that way? What was it about? 
either the things you said to him or uh, the the interactions you had that led this person who who should not trust you to feel as though he could tell you things that he couldn't tell other people. Steve, do you want a real honest conversation here, or do you want me to sugarcoat it? No, I, I want you to tell me the truth, yeah. Historically, white people have always befriended black people. Um, in slavery time, the master always had the house nigger, mm-hmm. excuse my expression, the house mm-hmm. ninja. Um, that was the person that he went to and talked to about things that he didn't even talk to his wife about. You know, this is his most trusted black person, mm-hmm. okay? Um, the house ninja was used the word ninja. The house ninja was someone that he that, that, that took care of the master. You know, it made sure that when he was feeling down or bad, he cooked his food, took care of everything. Um, so it's not strange that white people who call themselves racist find a favorite black person that they trust. Look at women in those days. They have the black woman take care of their babies. Right. Anybody who anybody who take care of your babies, you got to trust them. This is your child. You and know, so, do you feel have, do you feel like that was what he believed was going on? I mean, that obviously wasn't what was going on here with you. Uh, you were, you were, nor with, the, nor, nor, with, nor, with the, nor, nor with the black people during those days. Right. But they were, they were getting, they were getting benefits by being the house ninja, food, clothing, living in the big house, not the fields, pot, pot, and cotton. In my situation, Jeff, like Edgar A. Killen in prison, the fact that I never reacted to the N word, never, the fact that I never reacted to their, their, their beliefs, I never once put them down for what they believe in. I allow them to be able to talk to me and tell me things without me judging them. I reserve my judgment for my actions later. One thing about me, Steve, I'll tell you right now, I believe in I can show you better than I can tell you. I'm not going to do a lot of jaw jabbing throughout our <laughs> negotiation. At the end of gathering all the intel and everything that I need to know, I will then strike and react, as you can see I've done twice. Right. Okay. When he told me all these things about... Let's, let's talk about Virginia. You know, the, 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 the massacre in Virginia where that kid ran down those people. This is a guy who instructed those people, when we go to Virginia, if anybody bothered you or do anything to you, his exact words was, make sure lots of blood is shed. Now, that's the problem he had with me is I'm calling for the RICO Act mm-hmm. with the Attorney General. And so he knows that what happened in Virginia He's facing the RICO Act because as a leader of the National Socialist Movement, which also controls Vanguard, America, and a whole bunch of other white supremacist groups that's under his umbrella, their actions are leading to him as the leader as being in charge and why these people are doing violence. So when he called me back in 2018, remember, we talked in 2014 to 2018 off and on quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, he always called me as uh, discuss issues that he was having a problem with or the, the, the group was having discourse inside. They called him too weak. Remember, he was 16 years old when he took over the organization. He was a kid. And, and that should let you know something about the followers. Who follows a 16-year-old kid, you know, over their group? Mm-hmm. Uh, that should tell you a whole lot about the mentality of that whole situation. And 27, 27 years later, he called me up de- December 2018, and he sounded like somebody I'd never heard from before. This guy was upset about something really bad. He says, he's A. Stern. I said, hey. He says, um, I said, something's wrong. He says, yeah, I got problems. They're trying to take my house. They're trying to take my, 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 my income and my livelihood, my life, period. I said, who's they? He says, he's like I, like I supposed to knew what he was talking about. He says, the lawsuit. I said, what lawsuit? He says, oh, you don't know about we've been sued. And he says, I've been personally named in my personal capacity in a, in a lawsuit out of Virginia. I says, Charlottesville, Virginia. I says, okay. I says, and he says, 
it's about the um, the car that ran down those people. I said, oh wow. I said, so you're you're involved with that? He said, yeah. He says, and they're trying to they're going to take everything from me. He said, and also he said they're looking at probably doing the RICO Act when this is all over with the testimonies and people get on the stand saying what I did and didn't do. I says, yeah, I told him the truth. I said, you got problems, bro. <laughs> you know, I told him straight out. I said, that's that's serious. And he says the law firm that's suing me is the largest, most powerful Jewish law firm in the country. And when I looked into it, I said, wow, yeah, you do have a problem. This law firm ain't no joke. You know, they're suing you. Um, they didn't just sue you. They named, on the lawsuit, they named something like almost 20 defendants, you know, of all these different white supremacist groups, which I said, you know, kudos to this group. I mean, whoever saw this happen before? And so... When we're talking, he's really upset, and he says, I'm, I'm going to go ahead. He's, I'm tired. His words was, he said, this group is like an Abercross around my neck. Mm. I thought, wow, that's pretty crazy to call your own group an Abercross. That's pretty, you know, that's degrading. <laughs> and then he says, he says, these people, he says, you don't understand. I'm tired of them because all they have to do is do something now, and I'm going to go to jail. I said, Jeff, it's been that way since you started the group. You're just now all of a sunken in when I keep telling you about the RICO Act that you're responsible for the actions of your people. He says, yeah, this lawsuit's made it real. He says, he says, I'm only here because of the money. And mind you, this conversation is being recorded, man, because we agreed to record all our conversations, right? Mm -hmm. So, and he says, he says, the money's not that much. He says, you know, he says, but, you know, it's enough to take care of, it was, he, it was, it was enough to take care of my bills. He said, now I'm spending all this money on this law firm that's representing me to defend the National Socialist Movement and myself. I said, oh, okay, so now you're upset because you don't get no money now, and, you know, the lawyers are taking all your money. He said, he said you got it. I said, send me a copy of the lawsuit. Let me look at it. And, you know, he, he, he talked to me about this because, you know, I, I, I legally knew what I was doing when I got out of prison. You know, I went to trials and all that kind of stuff. So when he sent me a copy of the lawsuit, I read it. I said, oh, Kyle, I said, based on what Jeff has told me over the years, unfortunately, He's, he's liable for everything in that lawsuit. Mm. You know, the National Social Movement was actually guilty of the things that they, they, they have him in there for. And so I told him the truth. I said, you got a problem. I said, first of all, I says, you're talking about dissolving the corporation in Detroit. He said, yeah. He said, I think I'm going to dissolve it and start a new corporation that's going to focus in on white civil rights. That scared me, Steve. I didn't want him to do that. Okay? Because my fear was I don't know who else is out there, but I know Jeff Scoop. And if he dissolved the corporation, anybody can just simply go down there to the Secretary of State office and reincorporate it under their name sure. because it's free game at that point. And now they're going to carry on the same, same shenanigans and probably even go even further than he, he's gone. So I didn't want him to dissolve the corporation, just leave it to anybody else to grab it. I said, Jeff, I said, you're planning on dissolving the corporation to try to show the world that you have good intentions. He said, that's right. I said, he's also want to show the lawyers that I have good intentions, and I'm asking to take me off of the lawsuit and dismiss me. I says, Jeff, the only way they're going to dismiss you off this lawsuit is if you turn state evidence against, against yeah. everybody else. Yeah. So, so uh, we're going to run out of time, and I, I, this is a fascinating, fascinating story, but I want to make sure we get to some things before we have to end. Uh, so Scoop disputes some portions of your account. Uh, he said that you're telling outright lies and slandering in the press uh, he says you're overstating the frequency and depth of your conversations that led up to him handing you control and that he only signed the group over to you because you had convinced him that an ownership change would get this lawsuit dismissed. Um, he says right now what you're doing is putting him in a lot of danger. How do you, how do you answer that? 
all the people that he's done hurt, first of all, ironically, all the people that he's done hurt and caused to be hurt, I don't want to hear him crying about his life being in danger. He, 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 he ran a Nazi group, okay? So this, this, that answers that question. But let me just let you hear two things. He signed on January the 28th, 19, 2019, IGF Commander, the Incorporated National Socialist Movement, 2017-2008, in the state of Michigan, personally authorized the changes of the National Socialist Movement in filing Certificate of Correction January 14th. They include the author of changes as James Stern being the President, Secretary, Treasurer, Director of the group. Now, 30, 30 days later after that, February 15th, after we've been, after all that the press put out about me tricking him or outsmarting him, you know, in the media, he comes back February 15th and signed a new affidavit statement of facts, 30 days later. And remember, if I'm all this bad person he's thinking I am, why would you sign this one? Says the, he why says, would you do it again? Um, so so, so right, right. before we end, I... Yeah. Before we end, I want to I want to get you to talk about the danger that you think maybe you were in in this Me? situation. Well, did you ever feel like you. I'm I'm in. A, yes, I'm a, I'm in. That's why. Uh, first, my, my family and myself, when I took this on, I understood that there's 50 million worldwide nationalists around the world who follows his teachings. One point two million people go to that website daily and listen to his teachings and read, you know, his stuff that he has on there. Um so when I told them that I was going to take over the the, the, um, the website now, which I am, uh, and going to I'm going to stream on their Schindler's List, Roots, Amistad, you know, um, things that's going to Schindler's on the roof that's going to teach these people about the truth about these these subjects, you ought to know that my life is in immediate imminent danger about mm-hmm. that. Um, do I am I afraid of it? I'm afraid of not. Come on, you, I'm the guy who put the gang stuff together. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, <laughs> I don't spend my time being afraid of things. Yeah. Yes, we're doing heavily fundraising so I can have good security, legal staff, um, computer experts to make sure all this is done right. Um, but I'm not afraid of the truth. I'm a called, ordained, licensed minister. My calling is to die for my cause. Unlike Jeff, I don't sell my cause out for a dollar. Okay, He didn't pay me for this, but he was willing to sell out his people just to save his skin for his livelihood. Um, he has to accept the consequences of his actions for 27 years of being over a group mm. that spreaded violence and propaganda for 27 years. So I only to ask you to – well, at this point, your attorney general is investigating him for criminal charges. He went back down there to the attorney general's – to the secretary of state office illegally and re-put his people back on there as the, the incorporator, so, so, which was so illegal. So let me ask you, you say you're not afraid. Is this something you're going to do – Again, you say your calling is to die for your cause. So will we see mm-hmm. you try this somewhere else? I've got about a minute left, but I but I want to have you address it. I will that. try it somewhere else. I, I'm going to have a full time. By, 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 by disbanding the National Socialist Movement, we have actually taken a big knock out of the credibility of racism. The fact the way Jeff gave me this organization shows that their heart's not really into what they believe in, that there's a chance for people to be reformed, people to be taught something new. And I only pray and hope that all of his followers um, in the weeks to come of what I'm about to do in court and what's going to happen in a couple of weeks, they take notice of what's going on and they change their ways of doing things and, and let love and the human race be their driving factor. Mm. Okay, Reverend James Stern, civil rights activist who took control of a neo-Nazi group here in Detroit with the intention to destroy it. Thank you very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you. Mm -hmm. It's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. I'll talk with you again tomorrow.